Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, our neurology exam prep podcast being put together here at uh, Yale New Haven Hospital by our Yale residency program. I'm uh, Kevin Wilson. I'm one of the PGY2 neurology residents. And I'm Safa Abdul Hakim, a PGY2 neurology resident. And uh, with us, we have our, uh, our program direct- director and one of our epilepsy attendings, uh, Dr. Jeremy Moeller. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to do this. Absolutely. Thank thanks. You. Yeah. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about electroclinical syndromes. For uh, electroclinical syndromes, we're going to break it down, I think, by uh, age groups, and we'll, we'll run through a couple of the, uh, the syndromes within each age group. So, uh, Dr. Moll, if you don't, don't mind starting with the, the neonatal period, so we'll kind of take it temporally so people can follow that way. So I'm going to start with uh, one disclosure here. I am not a child neurologist. Uh, I do not treat uh, small children or children in the neonatal period. And so I'm going to be speaking uh, based on uh, my experience as uh, somebody who did have some uh, training during a fellowship in, in uh, early childhood EEG and epilepsy and, and based on things that I've read. So there, this may not be perfect, but should cover a lot of the topics that we might see on a certification examination or a um, examination for, for in-service examination. So I really think that in the very early or neonatal period, you're probably for the for our adult neurology residents we're you're only going to really need to know about three main syndromes or clusters of syndromes and then of course for child neurology residents they may need to uh, know things in more detail but just to be aware of a few different syndromes early in the neonatal period and and we're talking within the first three months and sometimes uh, very early the three syndromes uh, you're going to see are what are called benign familial neonatal seizures. Uh, These are seizures uh, that present uh, within the first two or three months of life. Uh, You have often uh, myoclonic or other types of uh, seizures associated with them. You can have focal or multifocal abnormalities on EEG, and they often have a genetic component, but they typically resolve on their own. It's a limited number of seizures, and they don't necessarily need any specific treatment, and these children otherwise have normal development. So the clinical scenario would be a child with normal development, no other major problem, infrequent neonatal seizures, resolving on their own, and of course the absence of any other serious abnormality. And the thing you need to know for licensing or certification examinations is that in many cases this is an inherited disorder as the name implies, often autosomal dominant, and the gene is a potassium channel gene. And uh, the potassium channel gene that you see with uh, this disorder is most commonly KCNQ2, although you can also see KCNQ3 uh, mutations as well. And, uh, and I'll come back to those mutations a little bit later because you can see them in more, you can see different types of mutations in more severe syndrome. So this is an autosomal dominant disorder in many cases. So you'll often have a family history of the similar sort of thing. Great. Uh, moving on, uh, the second syndrome in the early neonatal period is, is more of a, a grab-all of a lot of syndromes, but it's a, a, a cluster of myoclonic seizures and uh, problems with developmental progression called early myoclonic ap- uh, encephalopathy. So this is the type of disorder where uh, babies are having encephalopathic features, a failure to uh, proceed normally in terms of their development, and, uh, and myoclonic seizures. And this can have any number of etiologies. And, and I'm sure our listeners who have been on their child neurology rotations know that 
there's often a broad evaluation for metabolic, genetic, developmental, structural abnormalities that can lead to this type of disorder. And, and this can often be very severe, uh, and it really depends on the underlying cause. And, of course, treatment is going to include uh, anti-seizure medications, but also treatment of the underlying cause. The third one to know about is early infantile epileptic encephalopathy, sometimes also known as Odahara syndrome. Uh, the eponymous term is Odahara syndrome. And this has a crossover with the early myoclonic encephalopathy. And the, one of the major differences, as I understand, is that you don't see myoclonic seizures. You may see other seizure types, but not myoclonic seizures. And again, the etiology can include a number of causes. And, and one of those can be more severe loss of function mutations of the KCN, the potassium channel gene, but can include uh, other things. This is uh, on EEG often characterized by multifocal seizures or epileptiform discharges, and then classically by a discontinuous or burst suppression pattern on EEG. And it's one of those things that you need to recognize if you see an infant with severe epilepsy uh, with an encephalopathy and with a burst suppression pattern on EEG, you might be thinking about EIEE or Odahara syndrome. And a significant portion of these uh, babies actually die in infancy, sadly, and the remainder are often left with severe neurological impairment. Um, so just to kind of recap, the three neonatal period uh, epilepsy syndromes that we covered is benign familial neonatal seizures, and this is typically happens in the first two to three months with myoclonic uh, seizures or other type of seizures with focal or multifocal um, a pattern on EEG. It resolves on its own, does not need treatment, and it's typically inherited with an autosomal dominant pattern with a KCNQ2 or KCNQ3 potassium channel mutation. The second one is... Oh, early... just one last thing I didn't mention about that, sometimes called fifth day fits. So you'll sometimes see oh, that term. Yes. And that's because seizures that are occurring very early in the neonatal period, and that's the fifth day. And it's noted. Uh, and then the second type is early myoclonic encephalopathy. Typically, you would have myoclonic seizures, problems with developmental progression, and there are multiple etiologies for it, so it requires a broad workup. And then the third is, uh, and probably the most severe, is Odahara syndrome, um, and it includes uh, different types of seizures, and it's still KCN potassium channel gene that's abnormal. The EEG would show multifocal seizures, but the most important thing is the burst suppression pattern, um, and uh, typically children would uh, have problems developmentally as well. So actually, and just a, and a point, uh, Odahara syndrome is, uh, can have a number of different causes that it can include mutations among other causes. So. What's the other name for it again? You mentioned uh, it. Yeah, so EIEE, which mm -hmm. is Early Infantile Epileptic Encephalopathy. And an epileptic encephalopathy basically is a syndrome that's characterized by seizures, but also neurological dysfunction. And we can see that in, uh, across the age spectrum, right. uh, epileptic And that makes sense given the poor prognosis for, yeah. exactly. for, for that. It makes sense that it's uh, that severe. So that's great, guys. So that's fantastic. We've talked about uh, you know th probably three of the most likely things we are to see in the neonatal period. Why don't we move on a bit to infancy? There are several electroclinical syndromes that we often talk about in uh, infancy as well, starting probably with West syndrome. Yeah, so I think West syndrome is the, is the first place to start because uh, as we go through the encephalopathy or the uh, epileptic syndromes, you're really sort of progressing by age, and uh, West syndrome typically is going to happen is going to have its onset within the first year of life. Mm -hmm. Just a slight historical sideline. 
uh, is that uh, West is an eponymous term, but not named after a doctor that was a neurologist per se, but a physician whose son actually had this disorder, a sort mm -hmm. of a sad story. So West, uh, the first patient described with West syndrome uh, was the son of West, uh, of mm -hmm. Dr. West, uh, who had it, uh, just as a side point. To break down all of these electroclinical syndromes moving forward, we're really thinking about three things in each one of these syndromes and then some add-ons. So you start with those three things. Okay. And the first is the seizure type. So what types of seizures you might see with these disorders. The second is the neurological status of the patient. Mm -hmm. So whether or not they have developmental delay or other associated features. Right. And the third is gonna be your characteristic EEG findings. Mm -hmm. And so if we go through those with West syndrome, your triad is that the seizure type is infantile spasms. Mm -hmm. Under the new name nomenclature, we use the term epileptic spasms, and that's because uh, patients that are older than infants, you know, beyond the first year of age, and even I have some adult patients that have spasms, can have these spasms. And these spasms are characterized by the abrupt onset of often a tonic posturing, classically tonic extension, eleva elevation of the arms, flexion or extension of the neck, sustained posture for that for a few seconds, and then a sudden release. Mm -hmm. And the story with children with West syndrome is typically they'll have clusters of dozens of these over a relatively short period of time, every few minutes or even less having a number of these spasms. And they often remain alert. Uh, the children remain alert in between these episodes, even if they're briefly unresponsive during the episodes. And it can be very emotionally distressing. And so many people will experience have, having seen the children having clusters of these spasms and being very upset. And of course, the whole family is upset. Children with West syndrome typically almost always have some degree of developmental delay. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's the second part of the triad. And the third part is the EEG findings. And I think every neurology resident needs to know hips arrhythmia. And hips arrhythmia is high amplitude, uh, disorganized background with multifocal epileptiform discharges. And on old paper EEG, you could hold it sideways or upside down or hold it up to the light and look at the back of it, and it would look the same. It's totally disorganized. There's no anterior-posterior coordination. There's no uh, normal sleep transients, uh, and it's very high voltage. And the other thing on examinations, we always tell our residents, you got to look at the settings, look at the sensitivity. If you're seeing the sensitivity turned way up, so, uh, you know, typically in an adult recording, we're seeing something like 7 microvolts per millimeter. If you're seeing that set to 15, 20, you know, 30 microvolts per millimeter and, and seeing that setting, you know it's very high amplitude. Right. Similarly, on the little uh, bar, if you're seeing something that's 500 microvolts over a, over an inch, uh, then you know that's a very high high voltage recording. Yeah, so, so that's the hips rhythm is a very, very distinctive <laughs> pattern that we should absolutely be, be aware of. Absolutely. And then the, the other thing that you sometimes will see will be the EEG correlate of the spasm itself. Mm -hmm. And the EEG correlate of the spasm is something called an electrodecrement. And typically what you'll see is coming out of the hips arrhythmia or some other pattern, there'll often be a high voltage, slow wave, sometimes with some fast activity or muscle artifact, and then an attenuation of the background. That's the decremental response 
often for a few seconds, that correlates to the sustained epileptic spasm. And so <clears throat> I, I would uh, pay attention to that. That often shows up on in-service and certification examinations is, is images of that, uh, is that decrement, that sudden attenuation of the background diffusely front to back. Right. Very good. The etiology of West syndrome really depends. Uh, it can be any number of things, much like some of the earlier syndromes uh, uh, we've mentioned. Uh, genetic disorders, metabolic disorders, structural abnormalities, either perinatal or postnatal structural abnormalities. Uh, one, one that is classically known is, is, is tuberous sclerosis uh, mm -hmm. can uh, be commonly associated with West syndrome. We see it with chromosomal abnormalities. And the treatment uh, typically is ACTH. Mm -hmm. Although uh, many people will also use vigabitrin, uh, and particularly uh, in patients with tuberous sclerosis, this has been shown to be effective. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Prognosis, uh, some of the patients will improve, but most patients will move on to some other problem with developmental delay and can progress to uh, lennox gastaut syndrome, which we'll talk about uh, in a bit. One thing that we uh, uh, wanted to discuss is benign infantile seizures as well. Let's talk just briefly about uh, benign infantile seizures, and this is kind of a cousin of the benign familial neonatal seizures, except that it occurs a little later. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, there can be familial components to it, and um, one of the uh, familial syndromes is associated with, with the PPRT2 gene, which I always have to look up, but is proline-rich transmembrane protein 2, uh, and so that is a, a common disorder, which can also be associated, uh, as I understand, later on with uh, dyskinesia syndromes uh, uh, later in childhood. So just one of those exam pearls. Um, again, as the name implies, these are usually going to be infrequent uh, um, uh, seizures, uh, sometimes do not require treatment at all and tend to resolve uh, spontaneously. And you're going to be looking for the family history. The other uh, infantile onset uh, seizure disorder that you really do need to know about is uh, severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy, SMEI, sometimes also known as Dravet syndrome, D-R-A-V-T, -E, uh, Dravet syndrome. And uh, Dravet syndrome uh, typically occurs uh, early in life, uh, classically will uh, emerge after a febrile illness or sometimes after immunization. And this has led to uh, some question about its links to immunization, although we know very clearly it's a genetic disorder and, and that's sort of coincidental that it happens around the time of in immunization. Mm -hmm. uh, there can be a family history. And in the, in the majority of cases of Dravet syndrome, you see a mutation of the SCN1A gene, which is a sodium channel uh, encoding gene, a voltage-gated sodium channel gene. Um, and we'll get to later, but uh, uh, other types of mutations of this gene can lead to the uh, generalized epilepsy with febrile seizures plus syndrome, the Geffes plus syndrome, which is an associated disorder. Uh, as the name implies, uh, if we think about our three things, uh, in terms of seizure types, often myoclonic, seizures, but other types of seizures can be present. In terms of clinical presentation, there often is developmental regression uh, or worsening from a developmental uh, progression. 
uh, after onset of the seizures. And in terms of the EEG, no specific findings that I would say other than usually uh, an abnormal background and often uh, multifocal or generalized abnormalities. And the treatment is going to be any number of anti-seizure medications, but it's very, very uh, critically important to be aware that related to the fact that it is a sodium channel disorder in the vast majority of cases, you need to be cautious about the use of sodium channel blocking agents. And so the agents that would be particularly concerning and may make this disorder worse include carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, uh, phenytoin, uh, and, and other sodium channel blockers. Excellent. So just to kind of recap the uh, syndromes that are related to infancy. So we have West syndrome, which is known for its triad of infantile spasms, which are abrupt tonic posturing um, with extension or flexion of the neck happens in clusters associated with hips arrhythmia EEJ, as well as developmental arrest. Also in EEJ, you could get <clears throat> the pattern of electrodecrement, which actually um, overlaps with the actual spasm where the, um, the, the background starts to attenuate. Um, um, additionally, you can have it with uh, a variety of genetic and metabolic um, and perinatal post postnatal uh, injuries, but it's associated typically with tuberous sclerosis. Um, typically, there is a developmental delay. Um, uh, children could uh, often develop lennox gasto. Um, and the treatment is ACTH um, and sometimes Vigabitrin, especially with, um, in patients with tuberous sclerosis. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, moving on to um, some infantile, uh, benign infantile seizures. It could be familiar and unfamiliar. The familial type is associated with the PPRT2 gene, um, as well as some sodium, sodium channels. Um, and typically those are infrequent, do not need to be treated, and they would resolve on their own. Um, and then the third type that we want to focus on is severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy, which is the Dravet syndrome. Um, and those, um, the, the, the kind of seizures you have are myoclonic seizures associated with SCN1A gene, as well as voltage-gated sodium channels. Um, you typically have an abnormal background of multifocal or generalized pattern on EEG. In the treatment, you just need to be cautious against anything that blocks the sodium channels like carbamazepine, oxycarbazepine, or phenytoin. Okay, fantastic. Why, why don't we move on to some of the uh, you know, later uh, in, into childhood uh, electroclinical syndromes? I think we can start with some of the... Uh, uh, occipital, uh, benign occipital, there's a couple, there's an early and a late. Uh, I'll, I'll let you take it away, Dr. Moeller. Yeah, and actually just before that, uh, Kevin, I'm going to uh, talk briefly about febrile seizures. Again, as somebody who is not uh, the world's expert uh, on uh, pediatric uh, neurology, but just to be aware, because as an adult neurologist, I'll take history of, of febrile seizures. Absolutely. And so febrile seizures, there's a few criteria you need to be aware of mm -hmm. uh, when you're diagnosing a child with a febrile seizure, which really is a type of provoked seizures, so something you're not going to treat with anti-seizure medications. So you want to see that it happens at a time of a, of a fever, uh, mm -hmm. so that uh, the, the child has a temperature of greater than 38 degrees Celsius at the time that the convulsion happens. Uh, it typically is going to happen with children between the ages of six months and five years of age. Uh, so it's going to happen in childhood. If it happens earlier and later, or later than that, you're going to be worried. You want to make sure that there's no infection or structural abnormality in the uh, central nervous system. And again, that would point to this being more unprovoked than provoked. 
you uh, want to see that there's no other other provoking factors. So you don't you want to confirm that the child hasn't had hypoglycemia or uh, some electrolyte derangement that has caused it. So all of those criteria are important in diagnosing what are called simple febrile seizures, and. Uh, Simple febrile seizures are typically not treated with anti-seizure medications. They're common. Uh, it, they occur in anywhere between sort of 5 and 10% of children, depending on where in the world you are and depending on how febrile illness is treated. Uh, and while they may be a weak risk factor for subsequent uh, epilepsy, uh, in many cases they're a one-off thing that parents can be assured about. Mm -hmm. reassured about. It is important to remember that atypical features, what we call complex febrile seizures, do portend a higher risk of uh, subsequent epilepsy. And those would include prolonged events. And the cutoff is 15 minutes, which for an adult epileptologist seems incredibly long. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but before uh, convulsions so that you see with fever and that are less than 15 minutes, we're reassured about longer, we're wor more worried. Uh, they should not recur in the same 24-hour period, uh, and they shouldn't have focal features. So uh, generally speaking, your standard febrile convulsion should be generalized. Uh, so I think those are all important just before we get into some of the other disorders. So in terms of the, the childhood epilepsy syndromes, let's just talk about the benign ones, and then we can review those. Sure. And there are benign ones that are generalized. And by generalized, I mean they have synchronous onset in both hemispheres all at once. The seizures do, and they often have generalized abnormalities on EEG. And then there are benign focal epilepsy syndromes. Mm -hmm. And so the most common benign generalized epilepsy syndrome is childhood absence epilepsy. And when we get back to our big three with childhood absence epilepsy, you're going to have absence seizures. And typically in childhood absence epilepsy, you don't see any other seizure types. Uh, it's, it's very uncommon to see uh, bilateral tonic-clonic seizures in addition. These seizures are often very brief, 30 seconds, sometimes even shorter than that. They often have a sudden onset and offset, so you do not see associated uh, postictal state they can occur in clusters and can occur up to many times a day. And it's one of those syndromes that will, often the clinical vignette will show a patient who has attention problems or doesn't seem to be catching up at school uh, in, sitting in the back of the class. This typically happens in uh, school-aged kids. So I think the peak incidence is somewhere between five or six uh, years of age, but it's typically going to start just before that or, or just after, and it would be very uncommon uh, to be in juveniles. Uh, it's more common in girls than boys, uh, and, and these are developmentally normal kids. They don't mm -hmm. typically have other neurological problems. And every neurology resident, I would argue every medical student, needs to know the EEG finding with childhood absence epilepsy. So, Kevin, what's that? Uh, three hertz sp spike and wave. Yeah, so generalized three hertz spike and wave. Mm -hmm. And these are very regular it is not a good exam if, it, if this does not show up on it. Yep. <laughs> uh, wh whatever certification exam it is, it's going to show up and you just need to know the flavors of three hertz spike away. Okay. And the treatment is, uh, is ethosuximide. So, um, and ethosuximide is an uh, inhibitor of T-type calcium channels. 
so voltage-gated uh, calcium channels, which are concentrated particularly in the uh, reticular nuclei of the thalamus, among other places. And the reticular nuclei of the thalamus play an important pacemaker role in, uh, in generating oscillations between the thalamus and cortex, and it's presumably that's what's dysfunctional in absence epilepsy. Other, um, other medications like lamotrigine or valproic acid can work in childhood absence epilepsy, um, but, but are either not as effective or not as well tolerated. Um, and uh, ethosuximide will not work for any other type of seizure besides absence seizures. So if, you, if the child also has convulsions, you won't see it. Mm-hmm. I might as well say there's a cousin of childhood epi- uh, absence epilepsy called juvenile absence epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And from the name implies, it happens, uh, the onset is a little bit older. It's less benign. So uh, you see uh, this um, uh, can be more associated with bilateral tonic-clonic seizures in addition to the absences. It has a later onset. You still do see normal development. You still do see the 3 hertz generalized spike and wave on EEG. You often have to treat with other agents besides ethosuximide because you have to treat for the bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. So Mm -hmm. in, in young boys, you might be treating with valproic acid. In young girls, you might choose other broad-spectrum agents, agents like levetiracetam or lamotrigine. And it's less common for children to grow out of this disorder than the childhood absence epilepsy. And what age in particular are we looking for to differentiate between the... Yeah, so this is going to be typically teenage years. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes can be a lo- little earlier, sometimes a little later, but it's generally speaking going to be teenage year onset, whereas the childhood absence epilepsy is going to be school, uh, you know, uh, elementary school primary age. School age. Nice. Yeah, primary school age. Okay. Excellent. The other, the third big generalized one is JME, mm-hmm. uh, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. And uh, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, again, is a, is a cousin of these other two, is on the spectrum uh, of these disorders. And again, intellectually, developmentally normal kids. Onset's going to be very similar to juvenile absence epilepsy, so it's going to be teenage years, sometimes early 20s. The classic onset, I like to say this is the disorder you see freshman year of college. Right. Uh, and so uh, that freshman year of college disease actually enriches your understanding of the clinical presentation of this disorder. So your classic scenario is the young person who goes away to college, studies take a bunch of all-nighters for their midterms, right. and then has a bit of a party with some alcohol at the end of the midterms, and the next morning has a convulsion. So does everything out, in their power to bring it out. It <laughs> does everything in their power to bring it out. So uh, uh, sleep deprivation and alcohol use, especially sort of that minor withdrawal you have after a binge drinking episode, uh, are common provoking factors for JME. As the name implied, you, implies, you see myoclonic seizures often in the morning after sleep deprivation or alcohol, and they, those can progress to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. Uh, the classic EEG findings include bifrontal polyspike wave discharges that often correlate with the myoclonus and what we call quote-unquote fast spike and wave, uh, which is um, uh, usually four, five, even faster hertz uh, frequency of the bifrontal spike wave or polyspike wave discharges. We call that fast because it's faster than your typical three hertz with absence. Mm -hmm. And treatment, again, is going to include broad-spectrum agents, uh, and we can get into that in other podcasts, but could include uh, valproic acid in young boys uh, and in uh, young girls, we avoid that and tend to use either levetiracetam, lamotrigine, or other broad-spectrum agents. Excellent. 
Fantastic. So let's talk about some of the other uh, uh, benign, uh, more focal childhood epilepsy so we can go back to the younger children. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, you know, start with uh, maybe the, the occipital uh, paniotopolis syndrome. Sure. So paniotopolis syndrome is one of the childhood occipital epilepsy syndromes. And the two are an early and late variant. And this comes back to our absence seizure. There's right. an early and late and in general, the later variant is going to be less likely to resolve spontaneously. Right. Uh, and so, as the name implies, uh, childhood occipital epilepsy is characterized by seizures of occipital onset. Mm -hmm. In the early stage, there are often prominent autonomic features like vomiting, nausea, things like that. And there can be gaze deviation or visual manifestations. In the later stage, and this may be because children are able to notice it a little bit more, mm -hmm. you often have more uh, prominent visual uh, manifestations, visual hallucinations. There can be migraines. And, and I always remember, you know, remember, uh, spreading cortical depression starts in the occipital lobe in migraines. So that connection between migraine symptoms and occipital epilepsy makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, in... in uh, uh, both cases, uh, you're going to see occipit uh, uh, You're going to see normal development. Sorry, so that's the second thing, and then on EEG, you're going to see occipital spikes, and they're usually independent bilateral occipital spikes, often more prominent during uh, sleep than wakefulness, but they can happen at uh, at any time. Fantastic. And then again, the the age breakdown. So you know, we, we, there's there's some differences in presentation, but then the age breakdown for the early. Uh, uh, childhood occipital epilepsy versus the late. Yeah, so the early stage, which is our Paniotopolis syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be um, preschool or early school age, uh, you know, sort of three three to five years of age uh, in general, although there's there's some range around that. And your later onset, sometimes called the Gasto variant, uh, is going to be more like the school age. Uh, so, uh, and and again, the early variant, infrequent seizures, not usually convulsions, usually these focal seizures, usually resolves spontaneously on its own uh, with limited uh, range of treatment or no treatment at all. The later onset is more commonly associated uh, with a progression to uh, longer standing epilepsy, but in some cases is self-limited too. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. Why don't we... Uh, uh talk about benign epilepsy with uh, centrotemporal spikes, which kind of tells you what, what it is right there. Yeah, it really does. And I, I should say, you know, there's some debate, and I, again, I'm going to say it once more, I am not a child neurologist, uh, but there's some debate about the term benign. Mm -hmm. And that is because some of these children may have attentional or, or mild developmental abnormalities, particularly if they're having frequent either epileptiform discharges or uh, EEG abnormalities. But uh, so another term we sometimes see is childhood epilepsy with central temporal spikes. Uh, and, of course, the other term you might hear is benign Rolandic epilepsy. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, this is going to be school-aged kids, uh, usually elementary school-aged uh, children, um, usually developmentally normal, although there is some question about mild cognitive or developmental problems in some cases, attentional issues, etc. And... Um, the seizure type is typically nocturnal events with prominent motor manifestations, particularly involving the face and oropharynx, uh, which has a large uh, representation in, in your motor cortex. So uh, uh, children will have facial 
sensory motor uh, manifestations in their face. So facial twitching, uh, facial tingling, uh, uh, gagging, drooling, uh, those sorts of things. And that can progress to involve the hemi body and can rarely progress to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. Uh, in many cases, uh, children have only a handful of these seizures. They resolve spontaneously and they don't require any treatment. Um, on EEG, you're going to see central mid-temporal spikes. So these tend to be spikes that occur independently over both primary sensory motor cortex, which is also known as the Rolanda okay. cortex, in the central and mid-temporal region. So C3 and then T7 or C4 and T8, you know, sort of that central mid-temporal region, mm -hmm. much more during sleep than wakefulness. Uh, and uh, on, on a particular EEG, you might see them only on one side or the other, but if you get a long enough recording in most cases, cases you're going to see both. Um, in terms of treatment, if you need to treat, you use a focal agent, often sodium channel blocking agents like oxcarbazepine, though uh, some people use other agents. But in many cases, they don't require treatment, particularly if they're mild. Excellent. Fantastic. So I think that covers most of the uh, benign childhood epilepsies that we've talked about. Uh, and I think it, it would be a good time to kind of recap since we covered a lot and then we can go into the more severe epilepsy syndromes. So what we've covered, just uh, the simplest one of them is the febrile seizures, which we're typically looking for a provoking uh, factor, mainly the fever. Uh, it happens at six months to five years. There's simple, which uh, typically... Uh, children unlikely to develop epilepsy secondary to that uh, versus the complex, there's a slightly higher chance of them developing epilepsy. Typically, it would um, be longer duration, about 15 minutes. Um, and then we okay. have childhood absence epilepsy. Uh, the clinical presentation typically is more in girls, about uh, age six years. The EEG pattern that you have is three hertz spike and wave, uh, treated with ethosoxamide, which is a T-type calcium channel blocker. And then we have the um, more in the adolescence, the juvenile absence of epilepsy, which happens in the teenage years. Uh, a little bit older children bilateral, could progress to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. Um, children are unlikely to grow out of it, and that's why it would require um, additional treatments as well, more of your uh, broad-spectrum um, anti-seizure medications. And then GME, um, and typically those are development, they'll developmentally normal. Happens in teenage years, um, there are multiple provoking factors that we've covered. Uh, there are typically myoclonic seizures that happen in the morning, could progress to GTCs. The EEG pattern for that is typically bifrontal polyspike and wave that are fast, uh, four to five hertz, and they're treated with broad-spectrum anti-seizure uh, anti agent. And, the, the, and then the more focal epilepsy syndromes is uh, um, our Peniotopolis or early benign childhood occipital epilepsy, which, as the name implies, starts in the occipital, um, and those uh, could present with vomiting, uh, gaze deviation, autonomic uh, symptoms, as well as um, visual uh, symptoms. Um, and um, those, typi those typically are developmentally normal um, in the EEG with so occipital spikes. And there's a late variant of it, uh, and uh, those children uh, typically would have more hallucinations um, and less, more likely to, to move on to develop other uh, kinds of epilepsy syndromes um, rather than the earlier type. Um, and then we have our central temporal spikes um, uh, epilepsy syndrome, which is... Um, predominantly uh, nocturnal motor manifestation in the face and the oropharynx. Um, and then the EEG pattern that you would get with that is central mid-temporal spikes, 
um, around the C3 to T7 or C4 to T8. Um, usually normal development, and we would use some focal agents like oxycarbazepine, um, etc. Thank you, Safa. So let's let's move on to some of the uh, other uh, childhood epilepsy syndromes. Uh, why don't we talk about uh, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which is uh, something that you know comes up frequently, I think, in uh, uh, exams. Yeah, and and well, it should. It's common, yeah. and mm-hmm. and sometimes underrecognized, I, I think. And and uh, again, when we go to our triad, uh, the so if we think about seizure type, other neurological issues, and then EEG, let's just walk through that. Absolutely. So for the seizure types, really any kind of seizure. So this is multiple seizure types that you're going to see with uh, kids with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, especially falls. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I say falls, or sometimes we'll say drop attacks, because it's often a mixed seizure type. It's often a mixed, a mix of a tonic and then a tonic seizure, oh, interesting. or a tonic and then absence seizure, and so or or something more like an epileptic spasm. And mm-hmm. so there's this, or an atonic seizure. Of you course. know, so uh, so you can have a mix of all of those things that results in the uh, in the uh, in the subsequent fall or drop attack. And and classically, these uh, you know, I had a mentor who used to call this a malignant epilepsy syndrome because these are often the children and young adults who have bad falls uh, mm-hmm. and injure themselves and have to wear protective headgear and, exactly. and other things like that. So if you have that mental image of uh, somebody with frequent seizures of multiple types, including drops, having to wear protective headgear, and then you add on to that that typically there is developmental delay and static cognitive problems. So uh, it's very, very uncommon, uh, nearly unheard of for uh, children or young adults with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome to have totally normal neurological development. Uh, And then you add the EEG. And there's a couple of classic features on EEG. The first is what we call slow spike and wave. Mm-hmm. And so this varies from our generalized spike and wave that we see on in absence epilepsy, which is three hertz, in that it is typically two or 1.5 hertz. So it's these bursts of generalized frontal predominant spike wave discharges that are slow, 1.5 to two hertz, rather than the three hertz you see in absence. The second, and this is a little more nuanced, um, but I think important to be aware of, is that in sleep you have something called paroxysmal fast activity, or PFA. Uh, It doesn't come up so much on certification examinations, possibly epilepsy certification exams uh, or uh, other exams, but basically it's this buzz of generalized, often fairly high frequency in the alpha range, uh, uh, 10 hertz or, or so, medium amplitude activity that's clearly epileptic, distinguishable from sleep spindles, it looks very different, and occurs in sleep in those with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And in terms of treatment for Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, it's really whatever works. Uh, It can be very difficult, and typically these are the children that are on multiple anti-seizure agents, sometimes need to have corpus callosotomy, vagus nerve stimulator, other neurostimulation treatments. Uh, This is one of the uh, indications for the medical grade cannabidiol treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is something you really have to know about and really need to be familiar with, because you'll encounter it. All right, uh, why don't we talk about... uh epileptic encephalopathy with continuous spike and wave during sleep. Yeah, so this fits into um, uh, some crossover syndrome. So there is Landau-Kleffner syndrome, and then there's what you're describing, ESES, which is the epileptic encephalopathy with spike 
uh, waves in sleep. There are a number of different names for it. Absolutely. Um, but essentially, uh, these are epilepsy syndromes that are characterized by acquired neurological deficits, classically acquired aphasia. You can have other multiple seizure types. And what you see is continuous spike wave, usually slow spike wave activity during sleep, more so than during wakefulness. And there's uh, it's certainly outside of uh, the realm of my expertise uh, to discuss treatment, but there's some debate about how aggressively to treat the EEG findings, which don't really have a clinical correlate. So these are sometimes children who have few or, or, or no obvious clinical seizures, but have this epileptic encephalopathy with developmental problems. And, and with Landau-Kleffner syndrome, classically, that's an acquired aphasia. Acquired aphasia. Fascinating. Um, Fantastic. So that covers that covers most of I think our ch our childhood uh, epilepsy syndromes. Uh, we've already talked quite a bit about uh, some of the the more adolescent syndromes. We, we've discussed uh, juvenile absence epilepsy. We've discussed juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Um, I think there there's some other uh, kind of uh, uh, miscellaneous syndromes we can run over. I, I think uh, Rasmussen syndrome would be. Uh, an interesting one to talk about. Yeah, Rasmussen syndrome is a syndromic diagnosis. Um, again, uh, who really knows exactly what causes it? Um, but the classic sort of syndromic presentation, typically in children, although we have had cases of this type of disorder occurring in, uh, later in life uh, in adults, uh, is a unilateral hemispheric syndrome characterized by focal seizures often focal motor seizures, and, you, and this is where you can see epilepsia partialis continua, uh, mm -hmm. continuous focal seizures. Right. Uh, hemispheric developmental uh, uh, decline or regression, so the progression towards hemiparesis or spasticity, uh, uh, those sorts of things. And a hemispheric atrophy, which has a presumed inflammatory component to it. So when you do biopsy, you'll see inflammatory changes in that area. Um, there is uh, the, there's an emerging sort of consensus that uh, attempts should be made to treat this with immune modulating agents, mm -hmm. um, uh, and in some cases that will not work. And in the past, and even now, sometimes we'll treat that with uh, functional hemispherectomy, so disconnecting uh, that hemisphere, uh, deafferenting and deafferenting the abnormal cortex in that hemisphere. It's something you would only do in a young child because they have the ability to sort of. Uh, regenerate and generate plasticity. But just the thing you need to know about Rasmussen syndrome is it really is a hemispheric epilepsy syndrome. All right, fantastic. Safa, do you want to run us through uh, uh, just recapping some of the things that we've talked about? Absolutely. And then if you don't mind briefly commenting on gelastic seizures with hypothalamic hematoma, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not common, but just uh, worth it to be aware of it. Yeah, no, I think this is a really good one to talk about. So gelastic seizures... Um, are mirthless laughter, you know, sort of laughing without any happiness. Uh, uh, sometimes it can be as mild uh, as a smile or things like that, mm -hmm. um, but it's laughter when things aren't funny, uh, kind of like when you laugh at my jokes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and uh, classically, this is associated with the syndrome of hypothalamic hamartoma. These children often have other developmental delays. Uh, they often have other seizure types, uh, but the treatment can include uh, resection of that hypothalamic hematoma uh, uh, through various ways. Excellent. And any um, exam-related pearls that we could know about for PNEA um, um, or 
you know, differentiating syncope versus seizures, anything that we should be um, looking out for while answering questions related to the topic? Yeah, nothing huge uh, in terms of uh, uh, those. Um, you know, we do a lot of teaching in our program. I most, most people do because psychogenic non-epileptic attacks are extremely common. Mm -hmm. um, you need to know that they're common. Uh, they're frequently misdiagnosed, the delay to diagnosis is long, and that the treatment tends to focus on treatment of underlying Axis one psychiatric disorders, and then treatment with psychotherapy. Uh, early diagnosis and early treatment tends to be associated with a better outcome. In terms of syncope, you just have to be able to recognize that many people with syncope can have convulsive or pseudo-convulsive movements. Excellent. And one last point, uh, it's been well studied, urinary incontinence does not distinguish any of these three syndromes. Uh, you can see yeah. them just as often in any of them. And there are some great YouTube videos if you want to see people syncopizing <laughs> and having convulsions. It absolutely happens. Yep. They've done studies, yep. unfortunately, I think, with medical students. Yeah, <laughs> so, so in, in one of the studies you're mentioning, uh, you see uh, convulsive or abnormal movements with syncope in 80 to 90 percent of people who have been provoked syncope. I did want to mention uh, one other thing, and that is the progressive myoclonic epilepsies, uh, so the uh, PMEs. And this is something that comes up a lot on examinations. Um, and so the progressive myoclonic epilepsy syndromes can occur at any time of life and are associated with myoclonus and other types of epileptic seizures, mm -hmm. progressive neurological decline, and, uh, and they are often very difficult to treat. And there is a list of causes of the progressive myoclonic epilepsy mm -hmm. uh, syndromes, uh, which is worth going through just to be aware. Uh, and I'm not going to go through the list because that maybe that's in time for another podcast. But just to know these are things, you know, you're going to have to memorize. If you're an epileptologist, you have to know a little bit more about them, um, uh, but they, uh, you should be aware of. So a few on your list. They're often genetic sort of disorders. Uh, neuronal ceroid lipofusinosis. Uh, <laughs> it's La Lafora disease. I'm not going to recap uh, Unverucht Lundborg disease, which is also called bi uh, Baltic myoclonus. All of these tend to be disorders of uh, metabolic pathways. Of course. Uh, mm -hmm. Mitochondrial diseases. I think that's really important to know about. Mm -hmm. So mitochondrial epilepsy with ragged red fibers is one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, Gaucher disease and other uh, gangliosidoses and other storage diseases. So generate a list for yourself, write this down a few days before the examination, go through the list, and be able to understand some of the pathological features, some of the, the genetic tests that you can do, some of the other tests that you can do to distinguish these. But you just have to be aware, you will be asked about progressive myoclonic epilepsies, recognize the clinical features, and then, and then think about the different pathological and genetic components that you might see with those. Excellent. Great right. review. Thanks for teaching us. Yeah, fantastic. So thanks, uh, you know, thanks everybody for listening. I think, you know, just as a general uh, focus, I know that's a, there's a lot to memorize uh, in the electroclinical syndromes, but I think just want to reiterate that uh, it's important to kind of think of it in terms of that triad we discussed, where you have your sort of uh, 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 spell type, you have your neurologic, uh, your other neurologic consequences, and then you have your EEG findings. And if you can kind of break things down by that, it's much easier to keep track of. Uh, thanks for listening again, and uh, we'll see you again soon.